So we used mobile advertisements based on geofencing to send ads directly to Russian soldiers' telephones in Russian that said, you know, the world is closely watching what you are doing in Ukraine. And if you commit these crimes, these consequences, and they listed the consequences, these will follow you for the rest of your life. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Mike Breen, the president and CEO of Human Rights First, an organization that defends human rights and democracy around the globe. I've known Mike for a long time. We met in law school what seems like a lifetime ago. I always knew Mike would go on to do great things, but I never imagined I'd one day be interviewing him as he dialed in from Ukraine on a mission to document Russian war crimes. Mike has seen firsthand evidence of the Russian military's systematic torture of Ukrainian civilians. Before we get to the interview, here's a short video he recorded right before we spoke from a basement in a Ukrainian city recently liberated from Russian occupation. With local partners in an attempt to document war crimes, we've seen attacks on hospitals, attacks on schools, ballistic missile attacks on shopping centers, entire apartment buildings destroyed. And now I am standing in the basement of the village school which locals tell us was used as a torture facility. There are electric wires running down into this basement. You can see behind me a small room that was used to hold civilians uh, as they were tortured by the Russian military. There are Russian military documents and equipment left in this basement as the Russians fled. Uh, and you can see to my right, there's a volume of Pushkin, a portrait of the great Ukrainian writer Gogol and Vladimir Lenin. Mike Breen joins us now from Kiev. Mike, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thanks, Ken. It's good to good to see you. I'll be at it a hell of a distance. Yeah, no kidding. You just got back, I, I understand, from visiting several cities and towns that suffered tremendously under Russian occupation. Tell us what you saw. Yeah, uh, we we just got back to Kiev late last night, just in time for a, a, a drone attack on the city. So I spent most of last night in an underground parking garage while uh, Ukrainian air defenses were, were shooting down some Iranian drones around us. Earlier, uh, we were up in, in Kharkiv, which is kind of a, it's a really terrific city right up near the Russian border, a really strong spirit to that city, you know, kind of a almost a, a city of like the Ukrainian version of Pittsburgh Steelers fans. You know, these are like this is a gritty bunch of people with an ironic sense of humor who are who are just not going to go down for anybody, you know. And I say that as a guy who grew up as a Patriots fan with with grudging admiration and respect, but just just a terrific city. They've been under tremendous uh, heavy Russian attacks since the beginning of the war. We got to be there on the first Saturday night when this the lights of the city came back up and people got to go out. Um, it's blackout conditions the night before, blackout conditions the night after. I mean, you need a flashlight to get around downtown, but for one night only, people were back in the streets. But yeah, a huge amount of destruction just in that city. Civilian buildings hit the north end of the city. Uh, entire apartment complexes with just you know the front of these buildings just ripped off by by rockets and artillery fire, airstrikes. We visited one apartment complex completely abandoned. Buildings gutted. One lone Ukrainian woman with a broom just like trying to sweep up human-sized rubble. But that really I think gives you a sense of the spirit. But the, the really tough stuff is north. Of the outskirts of the city and then up into the villages which were which were taken and occupied at the russian high water mark late last year we went to a village named zarconi a few other places you know within about five miles or so of the current front line in the russian border and these are communities that are systematically destroyed by the russian military so you know i saw gutted and burned hospitals 
gutted and burned schools. There's still rockets embedded in the floors of buildings, rockets embedded in the in the ground outside. The woods are still mined. The place is essentially unlivable due to an unexploded ordnance and, and continued artillery attacks. About 17 of the villages just around us were hit with artillery strikes just that day uh, while we were out documenting. Um, so it's it's still very much a, a live combat area, you know. And then you know, really, I think disturbingly common occurrence. You know, some locals, there were a few people left, uh, and they took us to the the remains of the village school, like a grammar school, and let us down into the basement and. You know, there's a cluster of electrical wires running down into the basement and by all accounts and all appearances, essentially a torture facility for civilians. You know, a, a tiny little room in the back where people were held on these bed frames and all the leftover Russian military equipment and documents and, and you know, pretty clear that they'd been using at least electrocution and other means of torture probably looked like maybe some waterboarding was going on too. Of just civilians, just just locals. So it really is, I mean, there's there's no discernible military intent or advantage to be gained behind what we see. It's just, you know, an attempt to terrorize and subjugate the civilian populations through sheer brutality. A couple nights we were in Kharkiv. Uh, they're using S-300 surface data missiles as like these incredibly inaccurate ballistic missiles, just like lobbing them at the city, you know, and the circular error probable on those things is like measured in kilometers. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous as a military weapon. They're just using them as terror weapons because they have them in the inventory. So really, it, it has just, I think, as far as I can tell, you know, from start to finish, just been a complete war on the Ukrainian people at a, at a level that it's just it's really, really hard to get your head around. And you talked about the destruction of these these towns and villages, the the hospitals and, and schools that are flattened, the forests that are littered with mines, but it's, it's really about uh, the destruction of of the Ukrainian people. I mean, it's one thing to to lose your hospital and school, but the the systematic torture is directed. It's strategic. How do you separate those two when you walked into a a bombed out village, but understand that the real attack is on the spirit of the Ukrainian people, and that's what those torture chambers are for? Yeah, that's really well said, Ken. And, and yeah, we're at Human Rights First. We're we're working. We have been supporting local Ukrainian human rights organizations since 2014 and before, you know, been working here for some time, including in places like Kharkiv, there's a tremendous effort that's gone on. You know, every human rights organization, every advocacy organization in Ukrainian civil society is now a war crimes investigation. It's been an all hands on deck effort to try to document these war crimes. The volume of that effort is just staggering. I mean, you, you, you sit and talk to the people who are trying to pull this together both, you know, Ukrainian prosecutors and, and, and NGOs, and they're sorting through, you know, every village, every situation. I mean, it's endless. We will be dealing with the consequences of this from an accountability perspective for decades. And I think it's really important that the international community continue to stay focused on that. You know, earlier in this, you know, past couple of weeks, we've been working with a, a, a local human rights organization for, for some years now. Uh, it's kind of the Ukrainian equivalent of PFLAG. You know, that the parents of, of younger Ukrainians who kind of come out as LGBTQ. And it just happens that the, the one of the founders of that organization is a really nice woman in her 50s who lived in Bucha, which is now a name that kind of sends and fills up the spine. Uh, it's often described in the media as a village. It's not a village. It's, it's a suburban city within about 20, 30 minutes of the Kiev city center. I mean, think Bethesda or Chevy Chase, a pretty affluent community. You know, she took us to the church where the local priest remained and because the locals were not allowed 
to bury their dead in, in normal funerals, the church became a mass gravesite for these, you know, just essentially random civilians that were systematically tortured and murdered by the Russian military. Uh, this is all over the country. And it, it really is, I think, a volume of human rights abuse and war crimes that you know, we could talk about Syria, we could talk about Yemen, we could talk about other conflicts, but you know, this is this is really an attempt again to just use war crimes as a weapon against an entire nation. You bring a an exceedingly rare perspective to this work as the president of a human rights organization who's also a former soldier and experienced combat. The question I want to ask is around how you talk about justice in an active combat zone. I have some experience with this having been in Afghanistan as a as a civilian researching uh, some of these crimes. And there's a real tension between the the warfighters and in the case of Ukraine, those defending their country uh, and the the documentarians, the ones who who are thinking ten years down the road to war crimes trials. How does your perspective as a former soldier apply in this context? Good question, Ken. I mean, um, you know, I used to say I was, a, I was an army officer. I served in Iraq with an infantry unit in Afghanistan and Depeche and Korangal Valleys with, with an airborne unit uh, as a platoon leader. And so, you know, that experience, of course, colors, colors my entire life. It colors the work I do now. In a lot of ways, the work I do now is an extension of that experience. You know, I think one of the most powerful things that experience taught me is that the moral high ground is just as essential as the physical high ground. And while the tension that you describe is very real, and you know these discussions are not always easy, I think Ukrainian civil society and government from top to bottom in my experience here so far, they understand in their bone marrow how important that moral high ground is. And this is partially about a war about whether Ukraine will survive as a nation, and I have any doubt that they will. This is also about a war about you know, whether Ukraine is allowed to join the international community or is or is kept away from that by a Russian dictator. And that desire is palpable. So there are tough conversations going on here about you know, how do you treat Ukrainian citizens who are trapped in Russian occupied areas? What counts as collaboration? What counts as resistance? How do you think through the consequences of that? What do you do about Russian conscription of Ukrainians? you know, in, in occupied areas into the armed forces. So Ukrainians forced to fight against Ukraine. I mean, these are tough issues for a nation of war, as you can imagine, uh, and, and passions are high. But the documentarian effort here is really heroic and really massive. Um, I mean, I've, I've never seen an, anything like this, uh, the scale of a society really working to document war crimes, even if they're happening. I think I think there's a deep understanding of how important it is. You hear a lot this, this sort of sense of we have to win the war and we also have to win the future. And these two things are the same. Yeah, I'm not saying Ukraine's behaved perfectly in this conflict, you know, and th- there are tough dis- discussions to, to have about that too. But, you know, say it's a clear case of Russian aggression. You know, there's a lot of discussion about the actual you know, international crime of aggression you know, being, being levied for the first time in a long time. The case is so clear. And so I think there really is a sense, again, they've got to hold the moral high ground. They understand that the rule of law is a part of that. And they also understand that they're, they're documenting in many ways, you know, world history here and the history of their nation. It's very important for them to get it right. So tough discussions, as you can imagine, but they're happening here. I've always found composting to be too inconvenient and too messy to stick with. But then I got a Lomi. Lomi allows me to turn 
all of my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps to dirt in under four hours. There's no smell when it runs, and it's really quiet. And thanks to Lomi, I have way less garbage each week. And our family garden is now filled with dirt made from kitchen scraps. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, I turn that waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants. It feels great knowing that I'm composting and creating something useful, soil, instead of adding to landfill waste. I have a basically limitless supply of dirt for my garden. The other week, we had in-laws over for my daughter's birthday party, and the food cleanup was a breeze. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is the answer. Head to Lomi.com slash boats and use the promo code boats to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash boats and use promo code boats at checkout. Food waste is gross. Let Lomi save you the hassle of a cold trip out to the garbage can while filling your garden and doing right by the planet. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. The last few years, especially, have been a wild ride filled with my own personal self-realizations and growth. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. Because talking and working through things in our past allows us to deal with experiences that may be having a major impact on the way we go about our days. Therapy is an incredibly helpful tool for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Over time, we can learn to become the best versions of ourselves. And look, therapy is for everyone, not just people who have experienced major trauma. Because what you're working through matters. Never discount that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash boats today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash boats. How much hope do you have that accountability will actually happen? And then how much faith do the Ukrainians have that their efforts will actually uh, amount to something? I have to believe some some of it is cathartic on their part, but at the end of the day, they have to believe that the the trauma they're enduring, documenting these uh, these atrocities, exhuming these graves and and going through, you know, every every forensic analysis of these torture chambers, that it's, it's going to mean something. When you're talking about a power like Russia that can protect its criminals the way we know it can, what hope do you hold out that something like the, the indictment of, of Vladimir Putin at the international court is actually meaningful? Yeah, I mean, I'm a realist about these things. I think you have to be. Is it meaningful? Absolutely. Is it a panacea? No, of course not. You know, it's not going to be the satisfaction of immediate justice most of the time. 
through sanctions, through travel restrictions, through things like the ICC investigation. In some cases, you know, prosecutions in, in Ukrainian courts, you know, in the case of people who are actually in Ukrainian custody have committed war crimes. I mean, some things can be done and those things are meaningful and they, and they do matter. Some Ukrainians that we work with and, and talk to, I think, really believe this. And for some, it's a struggle for obvious reasons. But I also think when you're, when you're talking about justice in this context, especially, you've got to take the long view. You know, life is long. Political conditions change. You know, I remember as a law student, you know, doing some work on the, you know, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, where decades after a genocide, the leaders of that genocide as, as very old men were finally in the dock, you know, ending their lives on trial for, for horrific crimes against humanity. It took a while, but we got there. I don't know what Russia's going to look like in 20 years. I don't think anybody does. But the consequences of war crimes, once documented, follow you for the rest of your life, and, and they need to. And so I think, you know, the 25-year-old Russian company commander who's thinking about what he's going to do tomorrow needs to know that for the rest of his life, if he crosses that line, his name is going to be on that list. And sooner or later, justice is going to come for him. Well, we'll talk about that because that's not just wish casting. I mean, sometimes it is when we're in the the halls of Yale Law School and we talk about the deterrent effect <laughs> of these things. But you were right. you were on the front lines. You were one of those soldiers. Talk about the deterrent effect of an international legal framework that eventually does exercise the long arm of the law and hold war criminals accountable. First of all, you have to know about it. You know, you have to put this information in the decision cycle of somebody who's got a lot, as you know, and who maybe, and in the case of the Russian army, is very likely receiving orders that completely contradict everything I've just said. Right. So we've attempted to do that in our own way at Human Rights First. We, you know, into last year, ran what I think was a pretty unprecedented direct messaging campaign. So we used mobile advertisements based on geofencing to send ads directly to Russian soldiers' telephones in Russian. That said, you know, the world is closely watching what you are doing in Ukraine. And if you commit these crimes, these consequences, and they listed the consequences, these will follow you for the rest of your life. And we know we got a lot of views on that. We hit over 1.1 million Russian cell phones. So we, we really oversaturated the battle space, if you will, with that message. And, and it was shared a lot. And, and a lot of people looked at it. What effect that have, we'll never know. But I think we've got to continue to make this point to every soldier we can and just saturate their their understanding with it. I don't know what the real deterrent effect of this is, but I do know that brick by brick, conflict by conflict, it does matter to build a world where that that consequence happens. You know, accountability is key. And um and that's you know it's a long term it's a long term road, but I think this is the work of the entire global human rights community because ultimately justice really, really does matter. I want to talk a little bit about that Russian soldier and it's it's hard to reserve any sympathy at all. But what happens to an army that then employs systematic torture? And what is the corrosive effect on the culture that, that creates that army? I mean, we have micro examples of this in, in the U.S. military, like Abu Ghraib, and just the devastating effect that has on, on the military that perpetrates that. But talk about what a, a culture of brutality and torture does to the people who are directing it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, we could talk about the follow-on effects on everybody else in that force, and we could talk about what happens to the unit, and then when it's widespread. I mean, you, you mentioned Abu Ghraib. Yeah, I was, I was in Iraq for the events leading up to that, and also when the abuse there was disclosed. And I vividly remember this. 
you know, we used to go on, on raids, suspected bomb makers and people like that all through, you know, late 2003 into 2004. And, you know, young Lieutenant that I was, I mean, I would go, you go through the door, you find, you know, somebody who by all likelihood done some pretty terrible things, but also had a family who loved them and was, was very worried. And they were used to dealing with soldiers in the previous regime who would take dad out in the front yard and shoot him, right? Or torture him horribly. And so I used to give this very, you know, Eagle Scout speech about how we're Americans. We don't do that sort of thing. We're not going to torture your dad. We're not going to murder your dad. And of course, all, all those, all those guys were processed and sent to Abu Ghraib, which at the time meant nothing to me. Fast forward into 2004. And, you know, I'm on the outskirts of Fallujah down in a, in an Iraqi police facility. And I go down to inspect the holding cell in the basement where they're, they're holding up detainees, ironically, to, to make sure that they were be tr- being treated up, you know, according to standard. And they see me walk down the stairs in my American uniform and they start panicking and, and they're like screaming at the Iraqi guards, like, don't let that guy take me. And I can't figure out what's going on. And they have the pictures of Abu Ghraib. That's how I learned about it. So it, you know, in that moment, I felt what it was like to be, you know, for a second, to be a soldier in the kind of military that people are terrified of in that way, right? And it was one of the worst experiences of my life to feel that way about the flag, right? You talk about an entire military that's involved in this kind of human rights abuse in a systematic way. An entire civilian, you know, they've been taught to believe that an entire civilian population is these Nazis, demonized, and everything else. And, you know, I think it, it's hard to get fully inside that, but there is a kind of dark power to atrocity initially. You know, you've crossed a moral line. It's hard to imagine crossing back. So you get this victory or death mentality that can happen. And, and so it, it has a, you know, can for, for a minute can have this dark cohesion to it because no other group except the unit around you and the military you're part of will ever accept you in society. Again, you have that sense that you've crossed a moral line. You're in a different moral universe. How could you ever leave? But that doesn't last very long. You know, it corrodes the soul. It corrodes the unit, you know, and I think ultimately it just rots the entire organization from within. And, and you see this with the Russian military. You know, I think we're, we're looking at a military. You can look at Syria. You can look at now in Ukraine. I mean, this is an army that is good for essentially no military task except terrorizing civilians. They're terrible at combat. They're terrible at war. The only thing they're good at is essentially committing war crimes. I think there's a direct connection between how much of that they've done and the culture they've created for themselves. And then the psychic blowback to Russian culture at large seems to be something we're not talking about enough, and that's going to reverberate for decades, if not generations. I mean, I watched these clips of of Russian moms in rural areas saying they'll give all four of their sons to defeat the Nazis in, in Ukraine. I mean, this brutal mindset seems to have pervaded the not the whole of society, but more of it than than we we want to admit. I mean, we we hear about the protests in in cities, but you talk about the the corrosion of the soul. I just I look at Russia today, and I I worry about its next fifty years. I mean, I agree with you completely. You know, we have a a good friend, a senior advisor of Human Rights First, an incredibly courageous Russian human rights and political leader, Vladimir Kurenmurza. Vladimir was survived two poisoning attempts uh, by the Putin regime prior to this current full-scale war in Ukraine. His his family uh, reached safety. They're they're still safe in the Washington, D.C. area in the United States. Vladimir became a a global activist for accountability against the Russian regime and for political change in Russia. But when the war began, he left safety in in the D.C. area, flew to Moscow, 
and started getting on the radio and calling for the end of the war and, and calling for the Russian people to stand up against the conflict. Of course, arrested. So he is, as we speak, on trial for treason, a complete sham trial, and it is, it's essentially a gulag. And this is a man, a Russian, who was willing to sacrifice his entire life to say the right thing, right? I'm not going to run. But I think what we see now is this great sorting, you know, and, and it's like any form of extremism, right? It's that it's the big lie. If you buy in, you're all the way in, and how do you get back out again? And if you don't buy it, you know, you have an equally strong reaction, but the world bifurcates into people who've entered the, the fantasy reality of the big lie and the people who haven't bought it. We're no strangers to this, unfortunately, in our own, in our own world. In the case of Russia, it's a truly massive, monstrous, murderous lie. But once you're in, you're in, and you enter a world where it's very hard to, to move out of it. So I, I don't know what the political feature of, of Russia is. I think you know, political change is one of these things. It's a little like uh, like Hemingway's description of going bankrupt, right? It happens slowly, then quickly. Like it's it's churning under the water, and then all of a sudden it happens, and it's a big surprise. I, I, you know that could happen tomorrow in Russia. Um, but for now, yeah, it's 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 really worrying, and it is hard to see from the outside what could tip the balance and bring sanity. It's hard to see it. Why should Americans care? Why isn't this, as Ron DeSantis characterized it, a territorial dispute? That's such an unbelievable misreading of what's happening. It's hard to even begin to address it, right? But it's not a misreading. He knows perfectly well what's happening. Yeah, you're. you're of course, you're right. I mean, I'm. I'm being charitable, and you know, God knows what Ron DeSantis believes from five minutes to the next. But uh, I don't even know if Ron DeSantis knows. But I mean, why does this matter? I mean, this matters on so many levels. It matters because I don't want to live in a world. You don't want to live in a world. Our kids certainly don't want to live in a world uh, where the international community is okay with dictators who run countries with large militaries just starting wars of aggression. Uh, that's the first half of the 20th century. That's millions dead on the battlefield, right? We know exactly what that world looks like. We have nuclear weapons in the game now. The great achievement of the United States since 1945 has been to build a world where it's harder for that to happen. And that is absolutely at stake in this conflict. And I think it, you know, equally at stake is the future of democracy. I mean, if you put this conflict into context for Ukraine, a lot of the human rights activists and soldiers in Ukraine today are people who marched against, you know, in some cases, gunfire, policefully, peacefully marched to the Maidan less than 10 years ago uh, to overthrow their own would-be dictator and stand up for democracy. So this is a country where people have faced bullets in the streets from their own police forces and security forces to overthrow a strongman. Now they're facing external invasion by another dictator and they're standing against incredible odds. You know, that becomes a referendum on, you know, essentially the entire democratic world. I mean, do you stand up for a country like that or not? You stand up for those values or not? So that's significant. And then we could talk about American national security. Clearly, Russia is a massive national security threat to the United States. That hasn't changed at all. We'd be crazy from a national security perspective, you know, not to support an allied nation in effect you know, as, they, as they fight an armed conflict against that adversary. And then finally, China's watching. China's watching very closely, right? And it's not just China. But if you can get away with this kind of thing in a place like Ukraine, where you know we don't have strong community, you know, strong security commitments, and, and U.S. forces aren't directly implicated, it makes it a lot more likely that in places like South China Sea and Taiwan, where U.S. forces would become involved almost overwhelmingly, very very fast in the conflict, you know, what's the incentive structure there look like? So this really does matter, and I, I think the outcome here will affect the lives at a personal level. Uh, you know, there are stakes for for all of us. Do you ever? step back and just 
marvel at the fact that the party of Reagan, that Republican party that drew a hard line against Soviet expansionism, is now the party of appeasement. And in some cases, if you look at people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, borderline collaboration, I mean, it's insane to think about that shift. I can't get my head around it, Ken. I mean, I, I couldn't get my head around it when, you know, people like Tucker Carlson started attacking the FBI like six years ago. Right-wing pundits have gone after the intelligence. Right-wing pundits start going after military leaders, you know, the woke generals saying, and, and now we're at the point. Yeah. I mean, the idea that the party of Reagan wants to appease a Russian dictator is, I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah. I don't have, I don't have the words <laughs> at all. What do Ukraine's neighbors say? Because if there's anything that can shake Americans from their complacency, it's the the alarms raised by the next dominoes to fall. I'm, I'm not a proponent of the domino theory, bad analogy. But yeah. uh, in this case, you have the people who, who should know best, who have the most at stake saying this should matter to the free world. Yeah, I think actions speak loud. You know, I've seen plenty of Estonian and, and other Baltic nations flags spray painted on the side of vehicles here. People have shown up from those countries. Poland, you know, has taken in huge numbers of Ukrainians, given them refuge. Poland just announced its commitment to build the largest land army in Europe. That's not for no reason. They're rapidly expanding their military capability, you know, because they know they're next, uh, you know, if this, if this doesn't go well. So, I mean, the further east you get, I think the more you see spines start to stiffen. And um, and even Western Europe, you know, let's not forget at the beginning of the conflict, everybody was really afraid that France and Germany were just going to roll over and the opposites happened. I mean, we've got Sweden talking about joining NATO. I mean, this is like stuff you could not have imagined two years ago. So, you know, I hope this puts to bed the idea that Putin is some kind of like chess master forever because he's, he's just launched the most self-defeating war, of, you know, the century at least. But also the danger is palpable, clear, present, and all kinds of clarity of thinking the closer to the border you get, as you say. The best chess analogy I heard was that Zelensky is playing chess and, and Putin is eating the pieces. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty apt. It's pretty apt. I've got a, a personal question for you. How yeah. do you walk into a, a torture chamber in, in the basement of, a, of an apartment building or a school and take a dispassionate view. How do you do human rights research without losing your mind? That's a good question. You know, I think at a high level, you know, anybody who does any kind of work like this, right? You got to find a way to balance. You got to you got to lead a lead a life that has joy in it. You know, you got to make sure that you take care of yourself. I mean, you know, for for combat vets, this is a good conversation to have. But for human rights people too, I mean, you know. I still go see a trauma therapist pretty regularly and I kind of look at it like vitamins. Like as long as I have this job, I'm going to take my vitamins because even if I feel like I'm fine, I better make sure, you know, and I, I think, you know, for all of us who, who, who served, I think that's, that's true too. Right. But a big piece of it is, you know, a couple of days ago, you know, going down the stairs, the guy who brought me there is this, you know, 25, 30 year old Ukrainian and he's living in a tent outside a community center that has a grad sticking out of the floor still, right? And that's, I mean, he's working out of this thing. Um, that was his community, right? A grad is. Uh, the grad is a, a Russian surface-to-surface -surface rocket, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's this big tube sticking out. I mean, he's, point being, you know, his house is destroyed. His community is broken. He's not running. 
He's there trying to serve his community. He's there trying to rebuild. He's there trying to provide aid. And he knew everybody that got dragged down there. So if he can walk down the stairs, who am I not to, right? And then you do your job. You do your job, just like you do your job as, as, a, as a combat leader. And sometimes you compartmentalize and sometimes you have to deal with the consequences of having compartmentalized a little bit later. And that's just kind of the business we're in, right? Yeah. What can people do to help Human Rights First? Well, thank you. We're trying our best to support Ukrainian organizations who are working on the ground. So our, our function here is to let them take the lead in that capacity. They know what's going on. It's a Herculean effort. We can always use donations and support. Uh, that's that's huge. So humanrightsfirst.org. Financial support's extremely welcome. Support to Ukrainian organizations is welcome. We're happy to help direct that support if people want to get in touch with us and talk about that. Uh, but we also pass the support given to us on to those organizations as well. Uh, if you're a lawyer and you want to get involved in the effort, we have a ton of pro bono partners. If you're a veteran, uh, join Veterans for American Ideals. I mean, this is a 10,000 strong, you know, growing organization of veterans who want to stand up for human rights. If you're a technologist, get in touch with us. We have an innovation lab. We're building tech solutions for Ukrainian groups and others. So we need your skills if you've got them. Uh, we certainly need the resources. And then in the public debate, don't be shy. You know, feel free to, you know, talk about what you see and talk about what you hear. Great. Well, thanks, Mike. We'll make sure to put all of those links in, in the notes. Really appreciate you coming on. Stay safe. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. Thanks again to Mike for joining me. To learn more about Human Rights First, visit humanrightsfirst.org. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolofman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.